everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand-selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. So now we're going to be talking about the principle of open-mindedness. And I'll open this with a quote from Ray's book. Ray writes, if you can recognize that you have blind spots and open-mindedly consider the possibility that others might see something better than you and that the threats and opportunities they are trying to point out really exist, you are more likely to make good decisions. So open-mindedness is really it's a key aspect of both the idea meritocracy that Ray has incepted and the process of evolution itself. And we'll be talking about the principle of evolution in a little bit, um, but open-mindedness is very key to these things. It's a concept that's closely related to filtering and optionality. So it's kind of a form of non-cognitive intelligence that's intrinsic to evolution itself. So the, the algorithm of evolution is very simple. If it works, keep it. If it does not, discard it. And this algorithm of evolution occurs not only in biology, but also in non-biological domains, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But suffice it to say for now, it's this non-cognitive intelligence, if you will, that allows systems to learn by adopting what works and discarding what does not. So, for instance, this might be expressed in an entrepreneur that chooses to pivot, right? He tries one uh, business venture, runs into some type of resistance, maybe detects uh, another consumer wish in the marketplace and instead pivots towards satisfying that. Uh, this is also what causes life to just adapt in general. Uh, you may have seen grass growing through the cracks of the pavement, right? This is um, nature throwing the proverbial spaghetti at the wall to see what works and it doubles down on its winners and cuts its losers. Um, and this is also what we see in the process of innovation itself in that people are trying to solve problems consumers want solved faster better cheaper and it's that that process of uh, trial and error really that that drives innovation itself and as i'll describe later i actually consider innovation to be a form of non-biological evolution it's just the same algorithm propagating through a different substrate so 
In terms of open-mindedness, though, we could look at the contrary, which is closed-mindedness. And this represents like a rigid fixity on an existing knowledge framework that excludes the possibility of learning, adaptation, and evolution itself. Um, you could think of this even as like a totalitarian mindset where someone thinks they have totalized knowledge and they refuse to listen to signals from others. Um, and it's, it's that belief in the totality of knowledge that actually prevents someone from learning, right? You can't learn if you think you know everything. Um, that's kind of a good summation of closed-mindedness, if you will. So in a, in a business organization, if you have a culture that does not have open-mindedness built into it, then organizations are naturally going to fail to learn and fail to adapt well. And as is, as is true in nature, like if you fail to adapt in a reality that's changing all the time, that's a surefire path to the grave, essentially, whether you're an organism or an organization. So um, in those instances where a culture becomes plagued with closed-mindedness, other more adaptive organizations tend to learn faster and outcompete uh, closed-minded organizations. And, uh, and we see this you know, kind of driving change across history. So and this here we see another perspective on the ineffectiveness of central planning, which is the idea of moving in accordance with a single rigid plan of action that an economy can get locked into non-opportunistic courses of action. So to the degree that we're not allowing individuals to trade freely and consensually and, and trying instead to force them onto a central plan, right, to, to produce, as in Soviet Russia, right, they would just be given production quotas. So rather than a, a price signal coordinating the actions of consumers and producers in a marketplace, you had one government body saying, produce this many thousand cars, uh, regardless of the actual demand for cars. Um, and that, that same approach across various industry sectors inevitably resulted in, in shortages and surpluses and, and all types of dislocations in the marketplace. So when you get locked into this deterministic mode of behavior or mode of economy, you Actors fail to embrace opportunity. They fail to uh, adapt, ultimately, and therefore they become blind to optionality. Like you, you're, Taleb talks about this a lot in his writing that um, it's optionality awareness that's allowing a system to self-organize and change, right? The actual uh, feedback it's getting from the environment. But in the event that you're just running a central plan and not taking feedback, then you're going you're gonna to become blind to options and inevitably fall into these, these non-opportunistic courses of action. And so this is true across scales, right? This is individual level, business level, um, even, even at the nation state level. If you just think um, at this point in your life, you've got it all figured out and you're just going to live life this one way and there's nothing else you need to learn. I mean, I think it's almost intuitive that <laughs> most of us would understand that's a really bad mode of being. Yet we try to scale this out to entire economies or entire societies that they should just follow this, this central plan. And um, again, somewhat intuitively, that's a bad idea. But then we also have the 20th century as hard empirical evidence that that was a very bad idea. Uh, again, looking at, at Soviet Russia or Maoist China, 
um, or these other many other places where central planning has been tried. So, and this gets into another concept of, of Taleb's that I like a lot, um, which is the idea of confirmation versus disconfirmation, which he uh, analogizes in The Black Swan. So, legendary physicist Richard Feynman put it this way, he said, we can never be sure that we're right. We can only ever be sure that we're wrong. And this is why open-mindedness matters across all spheres of human action. Like you, you can never know with certainty, no matter how much evidence you have accumulated, that uh, a certain phenomena will always happen, in the, at least in the sphere of social sciences. Uh, right? We know that, for instance, water will always freeze at zero degrees centigrade, but we don't have a similar constant in social sciences whatsoever. So Taleb uses the example of swans here. Seeing a million white swans cannot prove that all swans are white. Yet seeing a single black swan can prove that not all swans are white. So the point here is that disconfirmation, right? Seeing the black swan is a more rigorous uh, form of knowing and confirmation, seeing millions of white swans, because it only takes one exception to the rule to invalidate the whole thing. And this is really speaks to the nature, or I'm sorry, rather the body of scientific knowledge itself. The body of scientific knowledge is whatever hypotheses have not been disproven, right? So someone makes an assertion, they, they create a hypothesis, uh, at least this is in the, the empirical scientific method, you make a hypothesis, you then create an experiment to test the validity of that hypothesis. And the ones that cannot be disproven by experiment or observation uh, over time just become the body of, of, of empirical science. So um, it's very important that the possibility of being wrong is always taken seriously, that all of our theories all of our all of facts, right? What we call facts is if they're just uh, eternal truths, they're actually always provisional. Um, you know, there, there's a period of time where we thought Newton's physical laws were the ultimate uh, theory of everything, if you will, and then along comes Einstein, right, and, and showed that there were there's an aspect of relativity uh, that sort of undermines the determinism of Newton's clockwork universe. So there's this. There has to be this humility that all of our theories, all of our assertions, uh, no matter how much accumulated empirical evidence we have, they're ultimately just provisional um, and, and really just tools, right? They're serving a purpose, helping us understand reality um, more closely or helping us, us change our behaviors to, to create uh, a more favorable outcome in the world somehow. Okay, that's all kind of abstract a little somewhat. So I'm going to try to bring this into this principle into the technological realm. And it's my view that open-mindedness in the technological realm is found in the form of open source technologies. So these, these are tools, uh, software tools, typically that anyone can inspect, modify, or share, right? This is, um, this is the nature of, of open source technologies. Like all of the, the, information, the code, the schematic, the structure is, is freely available, right? There's no proprietary or private aspect uh, to the information itself. Uh, 
And at Bridgewater, Ray's firm, he attempted to incorporate this principle into his culture through a suite of what he called management tools. Uh, and this, these are software tools that his team would use to collaborate uh, and make organizational and investment decisions. Um, and most of these tools uh, are open source by design. I actually think all the tools were open source by design so that anyone could inspect kind of the criteria that were being used inside of the tool. They could suggest modifications, they could uh, you know, tweak it themselves, et cetera. So it really inspired this culture of innovation and tinkering and critical thinking, even about the, the business systems that Bridgewater is running. And Ray's got a quote from his book pertinent to this that I will read. This is from page 527, Ray writes, because the thinking behind the algorithms is available to everyone, anyone can assess the quality of the logic and its fairness and have a hand in shaping it, unquote. So this kind of gets back to the principle of radical transparency where Ray's encouraging this culture of open-mindedness, right, by making the tools available to everyone Anyone can assess the quality of the logic and its fairness and even have a hand in shaping it. So it's this highly transparent and participatory culture that sort of embodies the ethos of open-mindedness and, and critical to that entire affair are these open source management tools. And to look at open source technology, what makes it really valuable is that it is trust minimized meaning that you don't need to trust, you don't need to have interpersonal trust in other individuals or groups that are representing to you that a technology does a certain thing. Rather, you can go and verify that for yourself. So this means it's, it's minimizing the need to trust people, right, who are fallible and deceitful and all the problems that humans have. And so minimizes the need to trust fallible humans and maximizes or rather minimizes the need to trust humans by maximizing our capacity to trust the tool itself through transparency, verifiability, auditability, etc. So we can, you know, you can inspect the source code of the thing that you're operating on. You can look under the, the proverbial hood and you don't need to trust the mechanic, right? You can actually see how the machine operates for yourself. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. 
Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Trust minimization is also one of the primary benefits of money itself. Um, and again, looking at gold as kind of the, the analog open source technology, if you will, um, it, it, it facilitated trust minimized trade and that's why it was successful. So what do I mean by that? In a market space, trading partners cannot inherently trust one another, right? Uh, markets are games. There are scarce resources. There can be winners and losers in terms of profits and losses. Um, so there's this, this antagonistic element to trade uh, and, and market action itself. And so instead of trusting one another, right, if someone were exchanging gold for, for goods or services, market actors were instead relying on laws of nature, right, specifically chemistry and physics that restricted the supply of gold. And they would use these time-honored techniques to assay the authenticity or verify the quality of the gold to make sure it wasn't, you know, copper painted gold or something like that. So it was this trust in nature, if you will, and then trust in these, these techniques for, for assaying the metal that allowed gold to facilitate trust minimized commerce. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's the big value add, right? You could hold your wealth or your excess economic energy in gold. And this is a medium you knew due to chemistry and physics, no one was going to counterfeit or inflate. And as long as you verified the, the authenticity and the purity of the gold in each exchange, then that was as, as trust minimized as you could get in the analog age. So that's why it was valuable, right? It might, might sound a little strange to think of it that way, but gold is effectively representing that open source ethos uh, in an analog monetary technology. And if we look at close, you know, contrast that to a closed source technology, uh, this is something that requires trust in third parties. So you could argue here, when we started to coin gold, it sort of flipped from being an open source technology to having at least a component of a closed source technology. Because now, if you if you didn't assay the metal yourself, 
and verify its purity and weight, et cetera, and you just trusted the stamp, then you're actually, you're, there's some counterparty risk there. You're trusting the issuer of that coin to behave honestly. And it's in that counterparty risk that you are moving outside of the realm of open source technologies and into the realm of closed source technologies. There's a, there's a, um, a spot under the hood that you can't see, if you will. So, and you know, Nick Zabo is a great, <laughs> great on this topic. He describes these trusted third parties as security holes. Um, once you introduce counterparty risk to a system, this is a problem in the security model. And again, this is why um, people favored gold over time, like actual bullion, physical gold, because it was it was outside of that um, domain of, of closed source technology and counterparty risk. So let's talk about closed source tech a little bit, what characterizes it. It requires trust in purveyors, first of all. So whoever's purveying the technology, if it's closed source and you can't inspect it yourself, you're trusting the individual or individuals rather than uh, the tool itself. They're typically unauditable and Therefore, they tip, they tend to be more maladapted to uh, market conditions and user demand because an open source technology is something that people will modify uh, to suit their needs, whereas a closed source technology requires modification from the, the proprietor, right? Only they can modify it. They own um, the, the schematic on it or the secret, the secret sauce, if you will. So... Again, if gold's open source tech, then I would argue that fiat currency is closed source tech, right? We, we, we have this purveyor who is a monopolist, this is a central bank. And as many of us learned in Economics 101, uh, profit maximiza- maximization for a monopolist always, everywhere and always comes at the expense of consumers. So prices no longer... Uh, emerge where supply and demand meet in a monopolized market, uh, the monopolist actually charges monopoly prices, which are uh, tend to be much higher than what you would see in a free market. And this is this is that negative dynamic that um, that causes monopolized markets to suffer from misallocation of capital and, and whatnot. So fiat currency is a closed source technology that is legally protected from audits and protected from competitive monetary technologies. No one is allowed to introduce a competitor to the US dollar, for instance, without facing the threat of state coercion, shutdown, jail, fines, etc. Right. So this is one area in the market that we do not tolerate innovation or competition. And this is, you know, the biggest market in the world, the market for money. Um, This is a really bad situation for for market participants other than the monopolist themselves. So this opacity of the closed source technology called fiat currency and market insulation, it not only slows the rate of innovation in the marketplace, as you see with kind of legacy banking infrastructure uh, compared to, you know, things we do online or, or things we do with Bitcoin. Um, and it also erodes the trustworthiness of the technology and the purveyors, 
who are the central bankers in this case over time, because you're inhibiting the market space from adapting to consumer demand. And this just makes for worse tools over time. So they become less fit to consumer demand and therefore uh, less trustworthy and less useful. So as I was saying, Bridgewater is a business that Ray has tried to infuse the culture with this open source ethos. And uh, Ray creates systems that encourage others to do, and I'll, I'll read another excerpt here from his book. Ray writes, to put honest thoughts on the table, have thoughtful disagreements in which people are willing to shift their opinions as they learn, and have agreed upon ways of deciding if disagreements remain so that we can move beyond them without resentments, unquote. So in my letter to Ray Dalio, again, I'm reading this in his book, seeing that his management style is positively embodied in kind of the, the architecture of Bitcoin, the open source architecture. So my question to Ray is, if your approach to culture and management style mirrors the philosophy of open source technology, and indeed you use open source technology inside of your firm, is there any reason you believe Bridgewater should benefit from such tools, whereas society should suffer under closed source fiat currencies? Um, shouldn't citizens everywhere have access to the most open and highest quality feature set for the most important technology in their lives, which is money? Um, I don't know if Ray has ever thought about money in this way as, as a technology, um, as something that benefits from, from being open source as opposed to closed source, but it was a, a glaring, um, it stood out to me, it was glaring to me in, in his book that he had not perhaps seen or understood Bitcoin in this way. And, you know, further, Ray is a huge believer in gold, big, big proponent. Um, which again is kind of this analog open source technology, free market money. So my question is, how could you be a huge proponent of gold and not be at least um, somewhat of a proponent on Bitcoin, which is effectively the same thing, right? It's a digital open source technology. It's emerged purely on the free market, uh, despite all the entrenched powers against it. And at the very least, you know, Ray, who's a self-declared free market capitalist, he should be open then to letting the market decide, which if we're listening to the market, um, Bitcoin is the fastest growing asset in human history. So obviously the market is telling us something. And um, again, like gold, Bitcoin's just open source money. Um, due to its open source nature, we often refer to Bitcoin as the internet of money. Uh, in the same way that the internet is a set of open source protocols for mediating the exchange of data, Bitcoin is an open source protocol for mediating the exchange of economic value. Uh, and I've, I've written about this to some extent where I actually consider Bitcoin to be the latest layer in the internet protocol suite. And it's this openness, it's kind of paradoxical in a way that it's this openness that ensures Bitcoin's code can't be manipulated by, by any individual at the expense of others. Um, so it's kind of this, this openness that gives it a, a fixed um, value proposition, if you will. And fiat currency is pretty much the opposite of that. Again, it's closed source. Uh, central planners are at their own discretion and at near zero cost. 
able to siphon value out of uh, the market actors running fiat currency or using fiat currency by inflating its supply. Uh, this is something equivalent to like a technology backdoor, if you will. So if you could imagine um, a cell phone where someone could siphon off and sell some of your data, right? If you own a smartphone, you're creating data by, by using applications. If you gave someone the rights to just extract some of that data and sell it, um, you know, they would effectively be stealing an asset from you, something you could otherwise monetize. Well, that's kind of the same dynamic when you're holding uh, money, which is intended to preserve purchasing power across time, yet you have uh, arrogated a single institution the ability to print additional units of that currency, which acts like a technology backdoor for siphoning purchasing power out of the money. So it's, it's, it's um, almost, a, a, you know, weaponized is a strong word, but it is a monetary system that is used to prey upon the private property of its users. That's all inflation can do, actually. Can't do anything else. Um, and that's why uh, we've established this pseudoscience called Keynesian economics to try and justify its existence because it doesn't actually have one other than to enrich central bank insiders at the expense of everyone else. So, and you know, further... This whole institutional web surrounding central bank interests, and there's a great chart actually in, in my letter to Ray Dalio that shows the institutional interrelationships. It is so complicated and holistically unfathomable how this thing works that, you know, it's very opaque, let's say, right? Again, as opposed to being open, it's very closed and opaque, hard to see into. And this makes the entire system prone to politics, arbitrages by insiders, the accumulation of systemic risk, and therefore, uh, systemic blow-ups. And again, if you just scan uh, the 20th and early 21st centuries, we've seen market volatility increase, uh, despite one of the mandates of the Federal Reserve to is to have stable prices, consistent growth, maximal employment. Um, it's, it's created the opposite. <laughs> Of, of those aims oftentimes. So in just a purely principled way, we could say that fr free markets are lean and adaptive, whereas central planning or central banking more specifically is bloated and bureaucratic, very maladaptive, slow, uh, low levels of innovation, high levels of price distortion, um, and overall just a bad deal for consumers or users. And in that sense, it's really a convoluted institutional system. And it's something that I think is antithetical to openness and open-mindedness. Uh, I often like to describe central banking as being as clear as mud and twice as dirty. And I think that pretty much captures it.